Welcome to Reason and Theology, a show dedicated to apologetics, discussions, interviews, debates, and more. The hosts are Catholic, but also welcome charitable conversations with Orthodox, Protestants, and non-Christians. And welcome to the Reason and Theology show, everyone. I'm your host, Michael Lofton on a, let's see here, uh, this is a Monday evening, trying to figure out all my days with so many things going on and so many updates we've been making to the studio. I'm losing track of time here. Uh, joined by my co-host, William Albrecht, and also esteemed guest, Dr. E. Michael Jones. How are you, Dr. Jones? Good. Good to be here. Yes, sir. It's an honor to have you. We've had a lot of people um, request you, so you come at high demand, and I, I truly appreciate you coming on. Uh, let me go ahead and formally introduce you. E. Michael Jones is a PhD. He's also the editor of Culture Wars magazine. He's the author of Logos Rising, which is available on fidelitypress.org, and he's also a frequent lecturer. And so today what we're going to discuss is your book, uh, Logos Rising. Could you maybe just tell us, um, you know, just to introduce us here to it, um, what exactly is it about and why, why did you feel the need to write it? Well, it, it's sort of arises out of a previous book I wrote called The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. And in order to write that book, I had to define uh, what a Jew was. And in order to do that, I had to go back to the crucifixion and I had to talk about Logos and the rejection of Logos. Uh, when the Jews rejected Jesus, crucified Jesus Christ, they rejected the Logos incarnate. And when you reject the Logos, you reject the order of the universe. And when you reject the order of the universe, you become a revolutionary. And that's been their identity ever since that moment. Uh, so once I stated that, then there was a long book that followed that. But then people would ask me, well, what's Logos? I never heard that word before. Uh, it's a Greek word, and I realized at a certain point, I'm going to have to write a book about Logos, and that's what led to, uh, to this book. So th th since Logos is the order of the universe, this is a book about uh, ultimate reality. Um, the, the man trying to come to grips with some understanding of ultimate reality, all of the uh, dead ends that they've gone through, all of the uh, partial advances that they've made, setbacks and so on and so forth, that begins with the beginning of everything. Since we're talking about metaphysics here, we're really talking about a history of metaphysics and comes up to the present. Yeah, now, you know, from looking at it, I haven't had a chance to read it, unfortunately, but I have been able to survey it. Um, it seems like what you're doing in it is you're just surveying from the beginning of history all the way to the present, uh, the logos and, um, of course, Jesus's impact on society. Um, is that an accurate understanding? Well, I have to, we're, we're dealing with metaphysics here, which is being mm -hmm. as being. And we're dealing with a historical survey of metaphysics, which is man's understanding of being as being, man's understanding of what is the ultimate reality. Uh, that's what it's about. So you have to deal with philosophical terms. You have to deal with terms like beginning. What does that mean? Uh, the Greek word would be arche. You know, all, all of these terms, so I, you, it's a history, but you have to deal with philosophical concepts along the way. So you have to deal with, but, but before you do that, you have to clear the uh, ground so that you can even talk about it. And that's what the first two chapters are about, because you've got a lot of people out there who want to do, uh, don't even know they're doing metaphysics. Mm. They, think they're, they think they're talking about biology. And the main, the main issue I'm talking about here, the metaphysical uh, uh, masquerade, the, the thing that most often masquerades as metaphysics in our age is evolution. Mm. It's Darwinism. And I try to examine that when I deal with the four atheists, because they're all Darwinists. That's the metaphysical thing that they're operating. And as it's a lot of mumbo jumbo, it's a lot of biological mumbo jumbo. But what they're really talking about is a fundamental metaphysical statement. And the metaphysical state, the statement they're making is that something can come from nothing. That's what they're saying. And the, in terms of the history of philosophy, one of the greatest advances uh, in the history of philosophy was Parmenides. And he said, that which is cannot come from that which is not. And he was right. I mean, that caused problems of its own, which I can deal with later on, but he's absolutely right. You are absolutely right when you say that. And when Christopher uh, Hitchens 
says, talks about the eye beginning as light sensitive cells on some animal millions of years ago. You, you have two options here. Either those light sensitive cells can see, in which case it's an eye, it's already an eye, so you don't need to evolve, or they can't see, in which case there can be no positive advantage for this when it comes to natural selection, so you can't get there from here. That's the fundamental metaphysical flaw at the heart of evolution. Dawkins does exactly the same thing, except he talks about a wing. Mm. And he says, oh yeah, it seems difficult to get from no wing to a wing, but if you go up the other side of Mount Probable, it's a very gradual slope and you can take tiny steps and blah, 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 bad metaphysics, bad metaphysics, because every tiny step is going to be from non-being to being, and you can't get there. You're, there is an answer to that, but you don't have it. And, and the, that's the problem with the whole metaphys, the whole uh, uh, structure of, of atheistic Darwinism. It doesn't work. Yeah, so you're, you're effectively critiquing some of the metaphysical difficulties behind um, evolutionism. Yeah, it's bad metaphysics. Yeah. First of all, it's, it's bad biology as well, but but they're yeah. trying to use biology as some type of pseudo metaphysics. It doesn't work. It's not going to work. And, and that's what I tried to show in that first chapter. Yeah, you know, I appreciate that because we, we've actually had a few guests who have been on the show who have made this critique about uh, some of the philosophical problems behind um, scientism <laughs> and a lot of the views of science currently, such as evolution. So I, I do right. appreciate what you're saying. So we're, um, we're, in the, we're in the middle of a crisis right now mm -hmm. because of COVID. Yeah. And so if you walk around the left wing neighborhoods of South Bend, Indiana, you see signs that say Black Lives Matter. And then right next to them, there's a sign that says science is real. Did you know that science is real? <laughs> well, what this means is just shut up stupid and do right. what you're told because <laughs> right. science trumps every other argument and that's precisely the way science science in quotes is being used as a weapon right now during this so-called pandemic yeah it, it seems like most pe people assume materialism they assume that there's nothing more to the universe in which um well there's nothing else other than matter and that there's no philosophical difficulties behind the scientific principle, or the, at least that there's no assumptions that are being made. Um, so there, there is a problem there. So I, I do appreciate the critique you're making. Now, can you maybe also tie this into, you, you mentioned earlier, um, the Jews, how, how does this tie in with them? Well, they, we're talking about, if you're talking about human history, you're talking about the battle between Logos and anti-Logos. Mm. Now, you're also talking about the battle against ignorance. But at a certain point, and I think the point came with the crucifixion, a group of people decided that the only thing that united them was their hatred of Logos. And that's different than ignorance. That is a willful suppression of what you know to be the truth. And that goes all the way up to the present day. Uh, a group like the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, is in the business of suppressing any type of speech that they don't like. Any and in my instance, it, it's Logos. They do not like Logos. And so as a result, I get banned. They go, they, go, they put pressure on people. Uh, you get banned. This is part of the crisis that we have to face up to today. And it's traceable both to the study of uh, uh, the, the history of Logos, as well as the history of anti-Logos. Yeah, you know, I, I can appreciate some of that just because... Um, not too long ago, I criticized some things that Ben Shapiro said, and um, every, um, I would say, non-unfaithful Jew, because they, they clearly weren't practicing their own faith, but um, every person that you can imagine came out on, and this was on Twitter, and just really lit into me for uh, making the critique and their hatred for God, their hatred for truth um, really came out. It was pretty much every Jewish Black Lives Matter, transgender, sodomy supporter <laughs> out there came out. And it was just an eye opener that these people really have 
fallen astray, not only from, um, you know, the truth of, of Christianity, uh, not that they ever personally embraced it, but they, they don't even maintain the standards of Judaism. So um, it does seem that there's definitely a concern there. So I, I could see how you could get a lot of pushback uh, for saying that. In fact, is that maybe related to the fact that I, I noticed that they're not selling your, your material. They took they took your YouTube down. They're not right. selling your material on Amazon. Is this right. related maybe to, to what you're saying here? Yes, of course it is. The ADL got me banned from both of those places. They go in and they have this power. It's They have Jewish privilege, which mm. means they don't have to make an argument. They just say we're magic words like anti-Semitism yeah. and you're banned. Yeah. Now, now I've written a lot of books uh, and uh, a, lo a lot of them don't even mention Jews. But they were all banned yeah. because this is the way they deal with people. And in addition to that, uh, there were a lot of reviews on my Amazon page. Mm -hmm. uh, Amazon doesn't own those reviews and they were simply obliterated. These were thoughtful people who had actually read the book, read books like The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and talked about uh, how, uh, how it had uh, changed them, how impressed they were with this book, the scholarship, whatever it is. Well, that's all gone because Amazon has a virtual monopoly power in book sales right now. Mm. And this is their way of simply suppressing speech that they can't refute. Yeah, You can't refute it, so you have to ban it. Th this is unconscionable. And, and, what's, and what am I supposed to plead guilty to here? I will plead guilty to uh, other, uh, uh, the uh, article that got me banned from uh, uh, Amazon Kindle. I wrote uh, a review of a movie that was produced by Amazon Prime called Hunters, mm -hmm. where the character, the main character uh, played by uh, Al Pacino, uh, says uh, it, the Jews are justified in killing anyone that they suspect of wanting to harm them. You know, judge, jury, and executioner. And I said, this is not only hate speech, it's incitement to violence. Well, I got banned. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute. I, you mean I can't review your movie either? I'm not allowed to review the movie that you put out? I'm not allowed to object when this Jew says he's got a right to shoot you if he doesn't like you? This is intolerable. It seems that it's not hate speech whenever it's a minority. <laughs> that, that's been my observation um, because I, I have watched the most hateful um, racist things come out of the black community online today. I'm thinking here of Nick Cannon. I'm not saying clearly everybody in the black community is this way. I'm just saying it is very much there in the black community and it's extremely overtly explicitly racist and nobody says anything about it. I noticed that also whenever I said something about Christianity, uh, I also got labeled that term there, anti-Semite, which is laughable. If if anyone knows my background, it, it's laughable to call me anti-Semite. If anyone knows um, anything about me, it's it, it's laughable to call me a racist or anything like that. But I was called all those things for simply speaking the truth about Christ. So it seems like anytime somebody wants to speak the truth, they get the term anti-Semite or racist or anything else like that thrown around when there's really no substance to it, but everybody wants to hear it. Everybody uh, flocks to that person. Everybody assumes that what they're saying is true and crucifies the other person um, with no actual merit. Yes. So yes. that's been my observation as well. It's pretty uh, insane the times in which we live in. So my question is this, why do you think that we are at this point in society where people can be explicitly racist, overtly so, and yet they're the ones who are uh, prized in our culture, whereas those who are not racist are the ones that are condemned as racist? How did we get here? <laughs> well, the, the short answer is it's called revolution. So revolution turns things upside down. So one of the things that's been turned upside down is actually the civil rights movement, where uh, you know Martin Luther King would say uh, the content of your character is more important than the color of your skin. Well, that's been reversed because it's a revolution. This revolution has always been there. It's always been in the background. Sometimes Logos is strong. Sometimes it gets beaten up. But the modern era has been basically one revolution after another. That's, that's what we've seen. 
And so what you have in the modern era, you have a, a, you know, like Nietzsche, beginning with Nietzsche, you have someone who believes in the transvaluation of all values, which is another way of turning things upside down. What was wrong is right, and what is right was wrong. Then you have Foucault, Michel Foucault, who was a revolutionary, interested in revolution in France, studied Nietzsche, and created uh, victims as special classes that had special rights. Uh, reversing what he saw as the privilege of the uh, upper classes or whatever. And it's all over the course of the last 30 years, Foucault and Nietzsche have taken over academe. Mm -hmm. And academe has created cadres for the revolutionaries. And that's why we're in the situation we're at. Basically, bad education for 30 years. The end of the book is about the, the takeover of Catholic education in the United States, the takeover of Notre Dame the abandonment of Thomism at Notre Dame University and its replacement first by materialism, mm. which had been totally discredited at that mm. point by someone who claimed to be, uh, who was Erna McMullen, who was a student of uh, Erwin Schrodinger in the 1950s. So he should have known about Heisenberg and he should have known that uh, Heisenberg had basically proven that there's no ultimate particle. You know, you mm. can keep splitting them. And they keep until they release energy and then you have an atomic bomb. But uh, what, what happened over this period of time is that uh, Logos came to the new world. It had a home at Notre Dame for a while and then it was strangled in its cradle. And now we have generations of poorly educated people providing the backbone of the revolution. These are all badly educated people. They're young people who never got a decent education. And now they've come together enough so that they can take over cities like Portland, which has been under siege for about three months now. Mm -hmm. You know, I get that we would have insanity outside of the church, liberalism outside of the church, um, hatred for God outside of the church. But how 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 is it that this thing has ended up in our church that okay, we actually a, have? Yeah, go, go ahead. There's a very simple answer to that, and it's called sexual corruption. And the, the book I wrote about this is called Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control. This is how the uh, enemies of Logos established a beachhead within the Catholic Church. So it was Wilhelm Reich played a major role in this. He wrote a book called The Mass Psychology of Fascism, in which he said, you don't want to debate the existence of God with a seminarian. Uh, you'll always lose uh, you being a communist. Uh, you don't want to do that. What you want to do is get him involved in deviant sexual behavior. And then he said, the idea of God will simply evaporate from his mind. Well, that's what happened. That's exactly what happened over this period of time. So you had deviant sexual behavior spreading among the clergy. Now, this is a real serious problem for uh, the Catholic Church because you have a celibate clergy. Uh, during the 1960s, uh, the priests who were heterosexual, who succumbed to the sexual revolution, they got married. And once you get married, you're out and you have to leave. But you don't have to leave if you're a homosexual. You can live a double life. And so you end up with then with entire orders taken over by homosexuals. And I'm referring now to the Jesuits in America. And I'm referring in particular to a priest like James Martin, who uses his position as a Jesuit priest to promote sodomy. Mm. <laughs> Why this mm -hmm. goes on, <coughs> I think can be explained by the fact that we have homosexual mafias, homosexual networks, mm -hmm. and that was exposed with uh, Cardinal McCarrick and how that man got to the high, one of the highest positions in the church, in spite of the fact that everybody knew he was a homosexual and was kind of flagrant about promoting sexual uh, activity among uh, seminarians. That's how it happened. That's how we got into this mess. That's how the, the devil entered the Catholic Church. You know, um, you, you bring up there the Jesuits, which reminded me of, um, of course, Malachi Martin, who wrote his book on them. Now, somebody um, mentioned to me that you review him uh, or you review some of his material in this book. Is that correct? No, it's in, it, the it's in another one. Spirit. Gotcha. So just curious, what, what was your um, view of him, if you don't mind me asking? Well, I knew him. I, I met him when he was still alive and he was a charming guy, he had the Irish gift of Blarney. He always told you he was a flatterer. He flattered you and things like that. Uh, but I, I, I guess I 
uh, that Irish part of me is eclipsed by the German part of me. And so I, when I called them up, I said, did you run off with Bob Kaiser's wife? First question off the bat. Well, that's the story that I tell in uh, the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Mm. The, the, the role that Malachi Martin played at the Second Vatican Council as an agent of the Jews, mm -hmm. uh, two particular organizations, B'nai B'rith and uh, the American Jewish Committee, uh, both paid Malachi Martin to subvert the church's teaching on the Jews. In particular, they wanted a statement exonerating the Jews from responsibility for the death of Christ. Well, mm -hmm. they didn't get it. And uh, all the people who complain about Nostra Aetate should read the document because the church is never going to affirm that the Jews did not kill Christ. It's just too obvious. It's in the Acts of the Apostles. It's all over the place. You can't get rid of it. The bishops were smart enough to understand what was going on. So they stated something in kind of ironic fashion that not all Jews at the time of Christ were responsible for his death, which I guess we all knew, didn't we? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's did obvious. anyone ever say the Blessed Mother <laughs> stood there and shouted, crucify him? No, no one's ever said that's that. pretty obvious. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I I knew Cardinal Bea, who, who he worked for, um, had a hand to play in that document. I, I, I just didn't know, I guess, the history behind. Well, uh, Malachi Jules, Isaac, Jules Isaac went to the Jew, went to uh, Pope John the 23rd, Pope John the 23rd, read, referred him to Cardinal Bea. And then Cardinal Bay as assistant was Malachi Martin. So that, that's how that came about. So he was an insider and he used his position to subvert the church's teaching. He never admitted it. He, he never came clean on this whole thing, you know, which, uh, and then he died and, you know, but he wrote these pot boilers uh, about black masses in the Vatican, which I always found implausible. Mm. But he never admitted the role that he played in, Vatican, in the Vatican Council. And eventually, Bob Kaiser wrote a memoir. It's called Clerical Error, in which he said, yeah, this is what Malachi Martin tried to do. He tried to run off with my wife. How far they got is something that's debatable, I guess. But mm -hmm. the fact that he did it uh, is not debatable. I think she, he was going to use the AJC to hire her. Uh, the book uh, industry is run by Jews and, and they were going to get, they were giving Malachi Martin big advances and they were, they, they were colluding basically to steal Bob Kaiser's wife. So that's all in the, the Jewish revolutionary spirit. You know, I don't know if you had a chance to see Malachi Martin's um, well, it's a documentary about him hostage to the devil kind of named after uh, his book title, but there's some deal that he had on Netflix that I watched. I don't know if you've had a chance to see it and if you know how accurate it is, because it touches on some of this that you're talking about. No, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I should have. What's it called? Hostage to the Devil? Yeah, Hostage to the Devil. Yeah, yeah. Okay. They just named it based on, you know, the famous book that he wrote a while back. Right. Uh, just curious, you know. You know, I, I, and some people are asking me about it in the chat, so I bring it up here. You know, I had Dr. Michael Brown on the show, and I know you've been on his show, and y'all have had uh, some exchanges. And, um, you know, some people were asking whether or not you are anti-Semitic. What would you say in response to people who would say that about you? Uh, you have to define the term. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, they, the way they are meaning it is somebody who hates the Jewish race, somebody yeah, well, who is against ridiculous. the that's Jewish ridiculous. race. First of all, the, what the term was created by, Vil, not created, but but popularized by Wilhelm Marr, mm. uh, whose book, uh, Der Sieg des uh, Judentums über das Germanentums, came out in 1871. Marr was a revolutionary. He did not like the Catholic Church. Uh, he needed a term that would criticize Jews because he, he really disliked the Jews because he felt they betrayed the revolution of 1848 in Hamburg. This was also a time when biological determinism was spreading throughout Europe. And so he came up with the term anti-Semitism, which means that these people have a racial uh, uh, tendency towards certain behavior. They have bad DNA because the DNA is the cause of their behavior. And there's nothing they can do about it. I have never espoused that. Never. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. I said, the reason I wrote the book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, is to propose a better explanation of what is going on. And my explanation is they rejected Logos. Mm -hmm. Does anyone dispute this? 
Did they kill Christ? Mm -hmm. Did that have consequences? Did they choose Barabbas? Was he a revolutionary? These are all questions. And when, when Michael Brown comes on, he's tried to, he tries to be uh, uh, fr friendly and flattering, mm -hmm. but it comes down to he's got the same definition. So what's the new definition? Anyone who criticizes a Jew is an anti-Semite. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you quote a Jew and you say exactly the same thing that the Jew says, but you disapprove of it, you're an anti-Semite. Mm -hmm. So Amy Dean would say, uh, the Jews are behind gay marriage. Well, if I say the Jews are behind gay marriage, that's anti-Semitism. If she says it, it's okay. She's bragging about it. She likes it. This is, goes on and on and on in this direction. And so now it comes down to Michael Brown invites me on his show and we get into a discussion mm -hmm. of uh, 1 Thessalonians 2. The Jews are the people that killed Christ mm. and they are enemies of the entire human race. That's the New Jerusalem Bible translation. Well, mm -hmm. he says, no, it's not Jews, it's Judeans. Mm -hmm. Well, what, what, you, There's only one translation. First of all, I know the Greek. It's hoi judeoi. I know enough Greek to say I know what the word is. And to say Judean is somehow different than Jew because they did it in the revised King James Version is crazy. Yeah. But he takes it even further. If you disagree with Michael Brown's cockamamie interpretation of 1 Thessalonians 2, you're an anti-Semite. Yeah. It's that simple. And so then he goes on and he, he says, he, he, he actually does this. He puts me on as if I'm on the show with him. What he's got is a recording of me. And oh, well, I thought me, that y'all were actually dialoguing. Wow, well, we did. That. We did in the first one. Then he takes oh, okay. a recording from that. Okay. Then this is a second program. Mm -hmm. And then he says, levels some statement to me. And then he says, you have the last word. Well, I'm not on there. It's a picture of me. And obviously, <laughs> I'm not saying anything because it's a picture of me. And this, this type of intellectual dishonesty mm. is despicable. It's despicable. And then, and then when I get banned from Amazon, he cries crocodile tears and says, I don't think he should have been banned. Well, uh, Dr. Brown, if you hadn't called me an anti-Semite, maybe I wouldn't have been banned. But that's, the, that, that's what you do. That's what these people do. They can't disagree with you. If you don't agree with their cockamamie interpretation of something or another, then they call you an anti-Semite. And that's the end of the discussion. Do, do you think that that's because maybe there's an overreaction um, because of what happened, you know, during World War II with the Holocaust, there's an overreaction to anything that becomes critical um, of the Jewish people. Do you think that might be why? Do I? Th Is there an overreaction? The Jews overreact? Yes, of course. They always overreact. Uh, is is it justified because of what happened during World War II? No, mm -hmm. no. Uh, do they use it to justify? Do they use World War II to justify every single atrocity that Israel commits with mm -hmm. murder and mayhem throughout the Middle East? Yes, of course they do. Is it justified? No, of course it's not. And what do you make of the claim that, you know, Christians are responsible for what took place in the Holocaust? It, it, that is, this was somehow um, us doing this. What, what do you make of that? Uh does anyone know anything about the Nazi ideology and the, the pagan roots of Nazi right. ideology? Yeah. And that's what I've been I mean, saying. Look, as well. I, just, I just went through this, the story of the statue in St. Louis. Mm. There's a guy who wrote a book, a guy by the name of Cohen wrote a book called the, the friars and the Jews about mm. the, uh, the Dominicans in the middle ages. Mm -hmm. And he makes the claim that, you know, he talks about St. Raymond of Penaforte, mm -hmm. who brought the rabbi Nicholas Donan to Pope Gregory IX, uh, introduced him. And then the rabbi asked Gregory IX what he thought of the Talmud. And Gregory IX said, what's the Talmud? Never heard of it. And so once he heard about it, he told Raymond of Penaforte to confiscate the books, put them on trial. And if they were guilty of blasphemy, to burn them. Okay, well, this now is a prelude to the Holocaust. Everything is a prelude to the Holocaust. So this is the way uh, Cohen says, the Jew hater became a saint. Well, wait, a minute. is this a little bit tendentious here? Are we a little bit tendentious here? This is what goes for scholarship among Jews. The Jew hater became a saint. 
Well, wait a minute. Let's go back. What about the uh, the Talmud? Are there blasphemies in the Talmud? Did they set Jews on fire or did they burn your book? Okay, that's different than the way we deal now. But the same people who get upset about burning the Talmud are the first people to step in line to get me banned from Amazon. It's the same group of people. And if you point out this hypocrisy, they call you an anti-Semite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, seems that people are very quick to throw out that term. Uh, you know, the race card, and then of course, um, you know, homophobic. All those 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 buzzwords that uh, people throw out. It seems that people are really quick to throw them out these days. And it's basically whenever you might have actually a, a good point, and they can't refute it. Here comes that. <laughs> right. Here comes the the straw man and the accusations and the race card and all that. Um, let me go ahead and pass it over to William for a second here. Um, William, what kind of questions do you have here for Dr. Jones? Dr. Jones, thank you very much for coming on with us. I've really enjoyed um, hearing you and Michael go back and forth. And it it, um, it really does remind me that we're living in um, in what I would call very odd, very odd times because um it reminds me of uh, something that I went through not long back, as Michael knows quite well, having my webpage uh, um, banhammered by, uh, by Facebook, um, labeled as hate speech, my webpage. Uh, Dr. Brown, my webpage is dedicated to the early church fathers. I don't have anything on there um, that would be, could be labeled as, as hate speech, but I do uh, speak out against Islam, against atheism, and I have a couple of articles that I've written where I have targeted the, what I would call the horrible theology of Rabbi Tobias Singer. Um, so I, I don't think any of that would really qualify as being hate speech. But uh, hearing you and Michael go back and forth, I, I really wonder, um, when, will, when will the double standards end or are they going to end in our lifetime? Because it really does seem to me, in my opinion, Dr. Jones, to really be getting worse. It is getting worse. They're absolutely right. We have reached unprecedented forms of uh, uh, censorship, of abuse, of and abuse leads to violence. And now we're seeing these uh, Jewish revolutionaries attacking people on the streets. I mean, Antifa is a Jewish organization. It goes back to the 1930s. Uh, uh, Black Lives Matter is supported by George Soros, uh, a Hungarian Jew who get, became rich and is now using his money to spread revolution through the United States. He's also supporting uh, prosecutor, uh, races and prosecutors. Uh, the, the prosecutor in St. Louis was elected with uh, Soros money. And uh, the minute she gets uh, elected, she decides she's not gonna prosecute crimes with uh, marijuana. So we're seeing it across the board and we're seeing uh, any attempt to identify any of these issues is immediately shouted down. First of all, they use the magic word anti-Semitism. They use a totally bogus term like hate speech, which is anything that the ADL says it is. And then you have no recourse. This is, this is the really uh, unbearable, intolerable situation here. You have no recourse. You 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 can't say, well, wait a minute. Can I can I talk to you? Can I call the the guy at uh, YouTube? Can I engage in a, a a human conversation with you and say what I've said to you to you two guys today? You know, am I an anti-Semite if I quote Amy Dean? Am I guilty of hate speech for criticizing Al Pacino? Uh, 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 advocating violence on an Amazon Prime movie. You can't do this. You cannot have a discussion. And if you cut these discussions off constantly, the way you're going on, you're going to, you're going to lead to violence. There's no question about it. This is the biggest crisis we're facing right now, because if these people take over, you cannot talk to them. I mean, what, what is our discussion about? It's about Logos. What is the fundamental manifestation of Logos? It's I can reason with you and you can reason with me and we can come to come some type of common understanding of what we would call the truth. Well, there's no discussion. If there's no discussion, there's no Logos. If there's no Logos, there's only one thing that's going to settle any dispute and that's violence. Yeah, and really, you, you, what a great point that you, you, you've made there, because it, 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 from the point of view that I'm looking at it from, there is no problem to advocate for certain actions that are done with the Black Lives Matter movement. But if you speak out against them, you can come out publicly and advocate 
the fact that we believe that all lives should matter. Sure, black lives matter, but the movement and the hypocrisy of the movement can be spoken out against. You can talk and you can, you can point out how the great hypocrisy of the movement is present center stage because they advocate for the murdering of unborn black lives. So how can black lives truly matter? And immediately what happens? You are labeled as a racist. I mean, it, it, it is mind blowing to me that um, I've seen it firsthand with uh, uh, my brother, Michael, who he's made posts before and uh, the posts might be targeted by people that are, you know, radical and right away, um, you know, people like Michael and myself will automatically be labeled a racist. You know, it seems to be to me that things are just maniacally out of control. Yes, we're in the middle of a revolution. We're in the middle of a revolution and the focus of this revolution is Donald Trump. They want to deny Donald Trump a second, uh, a second term. That's, that's obvious. You know, COVID is part of it. Uh, the hate speech campaign last year is part of it. It goes all the way back to Russiagate. There's been a constant attempt to uh, overthrow this government. And now it's reaching violent street demonstrations. So the question is, how is this going to end? How is this going to end? Well, we've got to stand up to it right now. And I want, I think I, I did an article on what happened in St. Louis. There were the same suspects, okay? Uh, the rabbi, the lady rabbi, the, the Muslim who's pretending to be, have the support of Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. They tried to get the statue of Louis IX taken down yep. through, because it was the Catholics who were demonstrating at the statue, they were praying the rosary, and this guy, Umar Lee, invariably referred to them as white supremacists. They were not white supremacists, they were Catholics. And once I identified the true dynamic of what happened, he got upset, he challenged me to a debate, and I think he lost. And tomorrow, it will be the Feast of St. Louis. In St. Louis, the statue is still standing, and I think we were successful in pushing back against the revolutionary movement there. Dr. Jones, you, you make a lot of really good points. I think maybe perhaps for clarity's purposes, maybe for people that might not know, what do we mean when we speak of logos? What exactly is being uh, spoken of there? Is it the term that we find, the theology we find um, fleshed out, um, pun intended, in John 1? Uh, what exactly is uh, the logos? It's a Greek term that uh, developed uh, th throughout the course of uh, Greek philosophy. Uh, one of the main people first, uh, so the beginning of Greek philosophy is the idea that there's, there must be some unity to all of this diversity that we see. And so Thales said it was water and Anaximander said it was air. And then Heraclitus came along and said it was fire, but he, he also said logos. And when you talk about fire, you're talking about something that has activity. It's always changing and it's always the same. You look at a candle flame. It's always changing, it's always the same. This is the paradox that he saw in, in being, and he used the word logos as a word that would transcend any type of material component. That was the big breakthrough that, uh, that, that uh, Heraclitus came up with. And that was in Ephesus at the time when the Persians, uh, it was, uh, Ephesus was a Greek colony and basically the Persian empire. 500 years later, St. John is in Ephesus. St. Paul was in Ephesus. The Blessed Mother was in Ephesus. And Ephesus was run by idol worshipers and silversmiths. And St. Paul had been expelled from the synagogues and he got a vision that he's supposed to go to Greece and he shows up at the Areopagus, which is a philosophical society, people who had studied Aristotle and Plato. And he said, I wanna to talk to you about this man. This man rose from the dead. And they all, well, well wait a minute, who is you? Who are you talking about? What? You, wait a minute, slow down, slow down. And so basically they said, oh, he rose from the dead. Well, we'll talk to you some other time because they didn't know, he, was talk he thought he was talking to idol worshipers, he had been used, he couldn't talk to these people the way he, he talked to Jews. The beginning of the gospel of St. Matthew is the way you talk to Jews. They have a genealogy of Jesus, that didn't mean anything to these people. So I think that St. John was aware of this failure 
And I think he wrote his gospel with this failure in mind by addressing the Greek people in their own terms. So, ein arche ein ha logos. In the beginning, there was logos, kai logos ein prostheon, and logos was with God, kai logos ein theos, and logos is God. Now, that's a metaphysical treatise. What it does is says to the Greeks, we value, first of all, I'm writing in your language. I am using your philosophical concepts, concepts because I think we need to do this in order to introduce you to the gospel. And that was the turning point of human history. Because at that point, not only did you validate Greek philosophy, you expanded it way beyond anything the Greeks could have imagined because you had the benefit of revelation. The revelation goes revolves around two terms, logos and son. And that's why you can say logos is with God and he's also God because you have the germ there of the Trinity. That's the crucial turning point. That's the way Christianity works. It takes what is good. Nature, grace doesn't destroy nature, it perfects it. That's exactly what I'm talking about here. Dr. Jones, that, that was fantastic. And it really, really um, it reminds me of the incredible language that the early church hearkened to as they, as they looked at John 1. You, you find um, the unanimity in the early fathers when they saw exactly what you uh, just pointed out. Uh, you know, the very fact that we have uh, uh, clearly uh, language that uh, lends itself to Trinitarian theology. As, as Catholics, we believe that, uh, you know, it, it, that, that is the centrality of our faith. Um, the belief in our triune God. So I, I find that to be fantastic. I, I understood that you were using that kind of language. I think it's very important for our, our audience to understand that. And, and you know, we, I'm, I'm fascinated that, you know, we had Dr. Brown on, we, we got we gotten different perspectives from different people. And, and I, uh, when we interviewed Dr. Brown, he seems to be of a different mindset, I, I guess, a bit. When we talk about the early church fathers, then you perhaps would be, uh, Dr. Jones. Some people think that the early church fathers were um, a bit harsh when it comes to the language they used against Judaism. But I wonder what your thoughts are, Dr. Jones, when we read the, the strong language that we find, we would have found in a Justin the Martyr that we found in John Chrysostomos, language that they used against the Judaism of their time, and of course, the Judaism that preceded it. Uh, that kind of language, do we draw a distinction between that language? Um, perhaps can we say that it is correct to say that Catholicism is that ultimate fulfillment, uh, how can I put this, of, that, of the ancient Judaic faith's promises that eventually came to fruition. And the distinction is between that ancient, those ancient promises and a deviation of those promises that we find within the Judaism in the time of John Chrysostom and many of those church fathers. Can you maybe talk upon that? Talk about that a bit. Yeah, well, uh, if, if you think you're going to placate the Jews by uh, concentrating on Jesus and throwing St. John Chrysostom under the bus, it's not going to work because the Jews think that the gospel of St. John is the yep. most flaming anti-Semitic tract in human history. Now, the smart Jews, uh, like Misha Brumlich, uh, make a distinction and they say the gospel of St. John is anti-Jewish. That is true. Christianity is anti-Jewish. There is no question, you will we can simply cannot get around that fact. Christianity is not anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitic means that there is some type of racial determinism. There is no racial distinction between the Jews who accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah and the Jews who called for his crucifixion. So race is a totally meaningless term. So therefore, anti-Semitism is a totally meaningless term. But the Gospels are anti-Jewish. There's no way of getting around it. Because what the Gospels describe is the contest between the Jews who accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah and the Jews who killed him. You'll never get around that. Yeah, re really good points that you're making there. So uh, I, I wonder, 
and, and I, I gather I gather your response would probably be very similar to to maybe perhaps what I would uh, say. But is it not unfair that you have a gentleman such as Rabbi Tobias Singer who can go on the air for an hour or two hours and trash Christianity, mock the Bible, mock Christ, mock the resurrection, and the majority of people don't bat an eye. But the minute you begin to criticize Judaism, you are an anti-Semite. Right. I just wonder, how is that fair? That's not fair. It's not. That's called Jewish privilege. They have that ability. They have that power. We do not. Uh, why can't I, if you can do that, why can't I uh, 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 advertise the Jewish revolutionary spirit? Isn't that the other side of the story? Well, the fact of the matter is that you got it banned, that you had to have it banned from Amazon means you can't refute anything that I said in that book. Where is the refutation of that book? You can't refute it. And so you have to ban it. If you think this is going to carry, uh, if this strategy is going to succeed over the long haul, you're mistaken. It's going to cause a reaction. Sooner or later, there is going to be a reaction. It's inevitable. Now, Dr. Jones, uh, uh, Michael asked this very question to, to Dr. Brown, and I thought it was a, a fascinating one. And, and Michael, he, 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 he kind of pointed to this in a Twitter post that he made about a week or two back. And I wonder what your thoughts are. Should we, as Catholics, as Christians of whatever, whatever denomination we subscribe to, should we make it a point to be evangelizing the Jews? to try and bring them to Christianity, or is there something wrong with that kind of mentality? Of course we should. Of course we should. This is the, the whole point of everything I've written, is to evangelize the Jews, to open them, to introduce them to Logos. And I have succeeded in many cases. There are Jews who write to me who say they've converted uh, to Christian to Catholicism because of reading the Jewish revolutionary spirit. This is not hatred of the Jewish people. They may perceive it. There are certain big Jews, the ones who run the operation, the one who use the little Jews as human shields uh, to advance their agenda. They may perceive this as a threat, but it is not a threat. This is an expression of love. This is, this is why I say I love the Jewish people. Okay, I love them because they're my enemies. They are enemies of the entire human race. And Jesus Christ teaches us to love our enemies. How do we manifest that love of our enemies? By bringing them to the truth. That's what I'm doing here. Now, that's, that's my duty as a Christian. If you get into the situation, and this is precisely where Catholic Jewish dialogue has led, where you start to affirm that the Jew can be saved without baptism, uh, you are you have left the Catholic faith, okay? You are no longer talking about the Catholic faith. And if you succeed with these Jews listening to you, you're going to condemn them to hell because no one can be saved without baptism. Baptism is necessary for salvation. Now, you could, God can make uh, deal with people if they're living in 5000 BC in the middle of the Amazon rainforest and had no possibility whatsoever of knowing about Jesus Christ. That's up to God's mercy. But if you, I'm going to give you a specific instance. When Bishop Barron is interviewing uh, Mr. Shapiro, Mr. Shapiro says to B Bishop Barron, Am I going to hell? Am I going to be damned? And, and Barron dances around here, gives a, a kind of uh, explanation of what I just said of invincible ignorance, uh, where it doesn't apply. What Bishop Barron should have said is, uh, Ben, are you baptized? Uh, and if, uh, did, because baptism is necessary for salvation. Now, if you refuse baptism, you cannot be saved. That's the situation. That's what he should have said. He didn't say it, say it because all of the bishops in the world have been crippled by this failed experiment known as Catholic Jewish dialogue to the point where they're denying the faith. Dr. Jones, what a great point. I just want to make a quick comment and then um, pass it over to my brother, Michael. You, you've been excellent. And on, on, that, on that very point that you make, 
uh, about Bishop Barron. Um, uh, I'm not here on this show to criticize any any um, any particular person, but rather to point out that we need to be more consistent in trying to evangelize and bringing people to the fullness of the faith. And, and Bishop Barron uh, rather disappointed me um, in that instance, but not only there, uh, in a video I saw with him dialoguing with um, Dr. William Lane Craig, um, whom I know, I know he's a friend of mine, and William Lane Craig, of course, is not Catholic, but I was a bit disappointed that uh, Bishop Barron, rather than defending Catholicism, as William Lane Craig gave the reasons why he would never be Catholic, um, talking poorly about the Immaculate Conception and various teachings of Catholicism, Bishop Barron offered no pushback whatsoever. I just hope that perhaps our um, the people within the church, our bishops, our priests, our deacons, the laity, I just really have a, a deep hope and deep prayers that we do our best to present the fullness of the faith. Because as you point out, Dr. Jones, these aren't uh, issues that should be played around with. These are issues that are crucial and that are at the heart of the gospel and are at the heart of salvation. Dr. Jones, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Dr. Jones, I appreciate you saying that you want to see Jews um, evangelized because what, what that basically means is you want them to go to heaven. You wish good for them, which right. is impossible to do if you hate them and their race, as some people are saying about you. So I appreciate you uh, saying that. And, um, you know, I think that what this boils down to is if you have the view that this person is in error and that they need to believe something else to go to heaven, that's seen as anti-whatever-they-are, uh, anti in this case, anti-Semitic. Um, that tends to be the impression that I get. I imagine you, you would agree with that. Yeah. Look, the, there's a clear example of how to deal with the Jews, and it's the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles. So when Ju Ju Peter goes to Jerusalem, Peter's the man who denied Christ three times. Now he's got the strength of the Holy Spirit. It's after Pentecost. And he goes to Jerusalem. What's he say? You killed Christ. That's the first thing he says. And then the, it says the Jews were cut to the heart. Well, if you don't say they killed Christ, uh, if, you, if you, all you're doing is saying how wonderful they are, they're not going to be cut to the heart. Okay, they're not going to see any reason that they should do anything. And once they're cut to the heart, they say, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, you must be baptized. That's the whole thing in a nutshell. That's all I'm preaching here. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a little bit uh, more detailed analysis of how you killed Christ, how you've uh, 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 attacked Christ throughout uh, the 2000 years of history here. But it's basically the, the, the gist of what I'm saying. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that if you're that what, what this boils down to is we should love people enough to tell them the truth and to tell them about their need uh, to believe in Jesus and to trust in him and to receive him, of course, as you mentioned, through baptism. Um, if we don't tell them that and about that need, that necessity, then we don't truly love them. We actually hate that person. We don't care about their soul. We, we don't care where they go. Or we just don't believe the Christian faith. I mean, maybe you just believe that everybody goes to heaven or you don't believe that people need to be baptized or you don't believe Jesus is the only way. I mean, it's one or the two. Either you hate this person or you just don't believe Christianity. Uh, but it's not a hateful thing to tell a person the truth and to call them to it. So I appreciate what you're saying here. Now I have a question for you. This is coming from, um, I don't know how much time you have, but uh, uh, there are a few chat questions if you have just a few moments. Yeah, let's go through them. Okay. Uh, this one is from Elijah Yassi. He's a contributor here um, at Reason and Theology. He asks, who specifically are these Jews? Soros, Rothschild, uh, Rockefeller. Who are the oligarchs specifically? Rabbis, Israeli leaders? Who are they? Rockefeller was not a Jew. Uh, you're talking about uh, oligarchic control of our culture. Okay, I'm talking about America. Uh, if you're talking about the funders of Black Lives Matter and uh, uh, Antifa, uh, you're talking about George Soros. Uh, if you're talking about uh, the people who uh, revoked 
the nuclear agreement with Iran. You're talking about three rich Jews who are uh, influential in the Republican Party, Sheldon Adelson, Paul Singer, Bernard Marcus. They're the three Jews that got uh, destroyed that and created the crisis now with Iran. Uh, if you're talking about the Jews who were remote, uh, responsible for a sexual revolution, you're talking about Wilhelm Reich, who was the man who created the term sexual revolution. If you're talking about Jews, Jewish involvement in pornography, uh, you can read uh, uh, Professor Abrams, who wrote an article in the Jewish Quarterly bragging about the things that I said in my previous article on this thing. So in order, in other words, if you want a specific answer, you're going to have to ask a specific question. This one is from River Run. Um, and by the way, River, uh, thank you for your super chat. He asks, um, what about propaganda, Time Magazine, the Jews, the Episcopal Resistance, and Vatican II? What, what, what are your thoughts on these things? I cover the, the as I said, the story of Malachi Martin. Mm -hmm. And Bob Kaiser, Bob Kaiser was Time Magazine's correspondent for Vatican II. I cover that in the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. If you're interested in a, uh, 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 the other uh, 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 undermining of Vatican II, Dignitatis Humanity, the other attempt to undermine Vatican II, David Wemhoff has a book called John Courtney Murray, Time, Life, and uh, the CIA, where we talk about the CIA involvement in that in that particular thing. But if you're interested in Jewish involvement with Vatican II, it's in the Jewish revolutionary spirit. These books are available at fidelitypress.org. Yeah, and um, you know, I think I'll I'll order it and read it. And if uh, you're willing, you know, to come back on, maybe we can we can discuss it after I've yeah, read it. Uh, this one, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'd be happy to. Yeah, this one is from Larry Romano. Also, thank you for your super chat. Liberal Catholics say that Vatican II teaches that deportation is intrinsically evil. What are your thoughts on this? <laughs> what? What? Deportation <laughs> yeah. is intrinsically evil. That's a preposterous <laughs> statement, a completely preposterous statement. Okay, <laughs> and it, it, uh, first of all, are we talking about uh, people who have the right of citizenship? Is citizenship... Uh, something that should be valued. If you have citizenship, you have a right to be in your country. If you are an alien, you have no right to be in a country. Okay. And so if you're there illegally, you, you, the country can deport you. There's no intrinsic evil here. That's preposterous. Yeah. I don't know where Vatican II teaches that. <laughs> hey, I'd right. like to hear the passage there. I, I would too. Um, all right. This one is from Shane. He, he doesn't have a question. He just wants to say he really uh, wanted to just say hello. And I appreciate your work. It was a big part of my conversion to the Catholic church. That was from Shane West. Thank um, you. This one is from Nazim. What does Vico get right that Hegel doesn't? <sighs> First of all, there, these are two chapters in, the, in uh, Logos Rising. Mm -hmm. Vico is the first man to really come up with an understanding of history. Well, uh, all right, maybe the second man, St. Augustine is the first man to understand time, to remove, to say that there is some actual fecundity of time and that human history has a purpose. That's the whole point of the city of God. Uh, Vico was uh, aware of that and came up with a uh, basically saved philosophy from the sterility of the Cartesian uh, duality of res extensa, res cogito, uh, which is basically consciousness and matter. There's no, there's no history to that. The, the, the problem is that you, you, allow, you gave a, a theoretical foundation of, of, for science that doesn't allow for history. History is not the same thing happening like planets going around the sun where it's completely predictable. That's not, not what history is. And, he, he, uh, and Vico was the man who understood it, the four phases of history, the recorso and so on and so forth. It's all in that chapter. Now, I am going out on the limb here. There is no way that Hegel did not know about Vico. And I give the evidence in the chapter on Hegel. Uh, Hegel, the difference between Hegel and Vico is that uh, Vico was a Catholic and Hegel was a Prussian Protestant who felt that um, uh, the culmination of human history was uh, uh, Protestantism. He had to adjust history in order to suit that particular end. Uh, he was serious about being a Protestant because he was uh, returned to Luther 
uh, and brought the, Luther, the whole Lutheran idea of the enslaved will back into philosophy. It wrecked his uh, understanding of the dialectic and it also wrecked his theory of history. But that's a long, complicated story and really you need to read the book to, to get the full story. And this is Fidelity Press, uh, is where you would recommend it from the, directly from the publisher, correct? You have to get it because Amazon has banned me, so you have mm -hmm. to go directly to the website and buy it there. Mm -hmm. Um, this one is from Andrew Jones. Given the historical context of Jewish persecution in Europe, do you think the claims of anti-Semitism can sometimes be accurate? Uh, is, was there a rise of anti-Semitism toward the end of the 19th century? I think there was. If you're talking about some type of racial understanding of Jewish behavior. Yeah, it did happen at that. Um, is it happening now? Was the church responsible for it? No. This was people who did not want to listen to the church. And secondly, uh, uh, is it happening now? No, no one is talking about, as far as I know, I mean, there may be somebody out there, but the big issue is not that Jews are somehow racially determined. That's not the issue now. The issue is now is that the Jews have the upper hand controlling our culture, and they're using this obsolete term to, to, to prevent any criticism of Jewish behavior any criticism whatsoever is immediately labeled anti-Semitism. It has nothing to do with what happened in the past. Um, Indy Irish asks, what is the best uh, strategy to break through the programming that people are under so that they can hear the truth rather than rejecting it out of hand? You have to be able to identify the, the, the actual concrete situation that we're in right now. I mean, the point I'm trying to, I, I end the, the uh, book by being a little bit critical of ace historical Thomism. So there's a Dominican who writes about the COVID virus and he says, well, there's the state. Does the state have power? Well, yes. And there's medicine. Is medicine bad? Well, no. Well, this is ridiculous. These are kind of platonic categories that have no relationship whatsoever to what is going on right now where science is being used as a form, a weapon to basically destroy people. So that's my critique of ahistorical Thomism. Elijah asks, who is really behind the Black Lives Movement and what is their goal? George Soros uh, revolution. Um, this one is from Justin the Catholic. Dr. Jones, how would you bridge the gap between Logos as the Greeks defined it and Logos incarnate in the Blessed Sacrament? That's what St. John does at the beginning of the gospel. That's where he made, says, in, in the beginning, there was Logos, so we accept the term, but Logos was with God and Logos is God. This takes it to an entire, a higher level. It resolves the contradiction that ended Greek philosophy, where you had Aristotle believing in the uncaused cause and unmoved mover, a totally transcendent God that is not imminent, and Plato proposing the demi-orgos, which is an imminent God, which cannot be transcended. Jesus Christ, the Trinity is both imminent and transcendent in every sense of the word. And it resolved that dilemma for the philosophers. And that's the way Logos moved forward in history. We'll take just a few more. Uh, Tom Gugliotta, how do you respond to liberal Catholic writers like James Carroll, who accuses Catholicism with a long history of Jewish supersessionism like the cross at Auschwitz? Yeah, uh, it's called the Jewish revolutionary spirit. That's my antidote to, to uh, uh, traitors like ex-priests who want to curry favor with the Jewish masters of the publishing industry. But, you know, if you ban the book, I can't really uh, go to, go to uh, fidelitypress.org. That will refute everything that Carol has to say in that ridiculous book that he wrote. Um, and then Hercule asks, how do Jewish converts to Catholicism respond to your bluntness? Well, some of them uh, uh, are grateful, uh, but there's a whole new issue now of what I'm calling the neo-converso crisis, mm. where Jews convert and they still consider themselves Jews. Mm -hmm. No, you're not a Jew anymore. You're a Catholic. Okay. The water of baptism is hardly dry on the forehead of these people, and they're attacking fellow Catholics as anti-Semites. Mm. Dawn Goldstein, classic example of what I'm talking about. Mm. Dr. Jones, I'd love to have you on again, as I already indicated. I want to read your book here on the Jewish revolutionary spirit first and then have you on, and let's talk about it. I think that that would make for a really, really interesting conversation. 
I think I'd like to have him on in multiple more shows. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But especially on on this topic, I mean, because you've referenced it multiple times today and it sounds really, really important um, from from what I've heard. Sounds very intriguing. Um, So I'm going to read it and, uh, you know, shoot you some dates and see if we can get you back on. Great. Great. Thank thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Jones. Is there a plug that you want to put in here? Yes. uh, Establish secure channels of communication go to fidelitypress.org or culturewars.com. Mm-hmm. Buy something, you'll be on my list, and Google and Amazon and the tyrants uh, in the social media can't destroy that bond once we, once we establish it. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Jones. You're welcome on, and I'll be in touch with you to have you back on again to talk about your book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. Uh, So, again, thank you for coming on. Everyone, thank you for watching. Please comment, like, subscribe, share this on your social media. Uh, Help us spread the word. We're trying to get the channel to grow here. So, again, thank you all for watching. Till next time, God bless. Thank you. Thank you, Dr.